having completed our series on the spiritual gifts and then encompassed within that series was the, the series on gospel obedience. We've now come to the point where we're prepared to transition to the book of the Bible that's going to occupy our study for the foreseeable future, which we know as the first letter of Paul to Corinth or the saints in Corinth. What I want to do today is use both of our services to make that transition. This evening, we'll spend our time looking at the more informational, historical, contextual background of uh, the city of Corinth, the occasion of its writing, and all of that information that really I, I don't know how to squeeze into a sermon and, and, and not make it boring. Uh, so we'll do that this evening in our, our Sunday school time. This morning, uh, what I want to do is not an exposition. We'll, we will not really enter into the text of 1 Corinthians specifically, but I do want to use our time to try to turn our minds in the direction that they need to be aimed every time that we consider any portion of the Word of God, but specifically 1 Corinthians. Whether it's with what we're doing as a congregation, we're about to move into a new book of the Bible that's going to have all brand new subjects and topics and ideas, uh, or whether it's just you in your private study, you maybe at the beginning of the year you're about to begin the book of Genesis over again, or maybe tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to pick up a a new chapter, or maybe just a new paragraph in your, in your sequential reading of God's Word, every time we do that, we ought to, if not consciously, at least subconsciously, take the time to answer the question, what is this that I have in my hand? What is it that, that I'm about to interact with as I open the Word of God? And I want to answer that question using the title of uh, a treatise written by a man named Thomas Goodwin called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. In that treatise, he begins by laying out a problem. The idea is this. Many people lived during the time of Christ's humiliation. And they were able to walk with Him and they were able to talk with Him and they were able to see His acts of power and His acts of mercy. And during that time He was relatable and He was sociable and He was clearly compassionate towards people who came to Him. But now, things have changed. He's not like that anymore. He's not in that form anymore. We don't have that opportunity now like they had then. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's been given a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's His position now. And so the, the, the idea in the mind, the problem is, if I had lived with Christ when He was on earth and I had been able to see His lowly, tender, human compassions, I would have been able to clearly see here is one whose heart is for sinners. But now that He's exalted, how can we be sure that He still has the same heart towards sinners? We all know people who might have been our peers and then they got moved up a rung on the ladder in some sphere and all of a sudden they didn't act like peers anymore. 
they, they got too good for us. We were too low for them. How do we know that Christ has not been exalted to such a high state, more infinitely exalted than anything we could ever imagine? How, that we, how can we know that having been exalted that high, that He's now not risen above the tender compassions and, and love that we see in His humiliation? And Goodwin goes on to explain that we can know Christ's heart in heaven towards sinners on earth. That's what he opens up. So when we come to the Word of God, whether it's opening a new book of the Bible as a church or whether it's you and your private studies every morning when you wake up and you go in, into the Scriptures and you ask yourself, what is this that I have in my hand? What is it that I'm about to engage with? I would suggest that you can answer the question this way. You have a testimony of the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth. Every time, this is the testimony of God's heart in the heavens towards sinners like us on earth. Now what I want to do is, at least to set the stage here, is take a phrase from verse 1 that we read and a phrase from verse 31. The first verse will just lay out our pathway and then verse 31 is sort of the, the banner over the finish line. Verse 1, the phrase I want us to consider is the will of God. And then in verse 31, the banner over the finish line is let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want you to think about the will of God to the end that you might boast in the Lord under the theme, the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth. So Paul says in verse 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now like I said, we'll open this up in more detail in a, in a, a, a true expositional fashion beginning next Lord's Day. But for now, I want to state this, and I hope that it's not assuming too much. The fact that we have what we call the letter or the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians is the direct result of the will of God. Now, yes, Paul's statement here, called to be an apostle by the will of God, is, is more focused, but I think if we studied it out broadly and we, we connected enough dots from Scripture and theology and doctrine, it would lead us to this conclusion, 1 Corinthians is the result of the will of God. The term will is the word... Thelema, it means desire or purpose. The will of God is God's desire, what God wants. It's His purpose, His desire or His purpose as they find their source in God Himself. The will of God is what God wants, what God intends, what God desires, what God is after in all of His workings. That's the will of God. We see a correlation in, in terms in passages like Ephesians 1, verse 5, which says, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. There's a direct correlation between the ideas of God's purpose and then God's will. The word purpose there means good pleasure. What it made God pleased to do and the will... The, the word will there is the same word, thelema, desire. God's will is His good pleasure. What God pleases to do 
And what it pleases God to do is His will. That's what it's meant here. In verse 11 of Ephesians 1, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So the word purpose there is a different word. It means His plan or His intentions. And then the word will is the same. We've been predestined according to the purposes or the intentions of God who works all things in direct relation to His will or what He desires to do. God has never done anything that He did not fully, absolutely, unwaveringly want to do. His will and His desires, His purposes, His intentions, they are one in God. For us, sometimes our, our desires will kind of compete. Well, I, I, I would like to do this, but I kind of like to do this too. With God, there's none of that. No incongruity. No, no wavering. No, no, no stuttering between opinions. With God, what He wills, what He desires, what He purposes, what He intentions, He does. Period. Absolutely. Now, if we think in human terms, the will is, is the root of all these things within our soul. And it finds its source in uh, the affections and often what we call the heart. The heart. Though God is not a man, and there are vast differences in the way that we would, we would open up these if we wanted to be really clearly and, and theologically accurate, we can still, I think, safely and biblically say, or we can consider the will of God to be the very root and source of His pleasures, His desires, His plans, and His intentions, and vice versa. His pleasures, His desires, His plans, His intentions, these are all synonymous with His will. In, in the Old Testament, the word that's translated in the New Testament as will, thelema, is used to translate multiple uh, Hebrew words in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this just gives us more of a, uh, a, a multifaceted view of what the Apostle Paul could have had in mind when he wrote the word thelema. What, what was his background in using this word? And it's, it's big. In Psalm 30 verse 5 we read, For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Or His favor is life. That word favor... In the Hebrew, his goodwill, his acceptance, his satisfaction is translated by the Greek translators as thelema, his will, his desire, his life. Psalm 145, 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. That word desire is translated using the word will. So we see a relationship between the will and the desires. Psalm 16:3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That word delight is also translated using this term will. The will contains or produces the faculty of delight. What we call joy or happiness. The will is there. That which one wills is that which brings them happiness. We could read this passage, Paul called according to the happiness of God to be an apostle. Paul called to be an apostle because that's what made God happy, that he would be an apostle. Isaiah 58, 13, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, 
on my holy day. That word pleasure is also used, translated using the same word will. The pleasures of the heart are what steer the will. And the will of the heart is what forms the pleasures. They, they go hand in hand. Isaiah 48, 14, the Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. That word is also translated will. The will and the purposes of God. The will of the Lord establishes His purposes or His intentions in all things. The will of God, if we may speak in human terms, is the faculty in God which constitutes His pleasures, His delights, His desires, His purposes. When we think of the will of God, we can't imagine a smile across the face of God doing that which pleases Him. And this broad range of what are for us maybe abstract concepts or notions, they can be stated in our, our regular vernacular and even biblical vernacular or terminology using one metaphorical picture, the heart of God. The will of God and the heart of God are, are the same thing, one using uh, that abstract notion of the will and the other just using the picture of the heart, the seat Speaking of people, we might say she, she really has a heart for children. Or, or that man, he really has a heart for the lost. Well, what are we saying? We're saying it seems like everything in that person is just coming out and towards the object. She for the children, he for the lost. Or we might say, well, he failed because he didn't put his whole heart into it. Or she really put her heart on the line with that one. What are we saying? We're saying they... they she hung it all on the line, everything that she was and is. She put it all out there. We're saying that the inmost stirring appetite of the soul is expressed in some way clearly toward this thing or that thing. They're, just, they're coming out of themselves after a thing. That's what we mean when we say their heart. And so when we speak of the will of God... And we translate it into this metaphorical sense and we speak of the heart of God. The subject is really the deepest, most intense, laser-focused appetite of God Himself. His heart. If we could say, God really has a heart for blank. That's what we're saying here. He, he, really, he really displayed His heart in this or that. Everything, His whole being. The difference, however, between us and God is that God is simple. God is simple. His will, His desires, His pleasures, His delights, His purposes, they're all one with who He is in His essence as God. God doesn't simply have pleasures or delights or desires or purposes. Rather, God's pleasures, God's delights, God's desires, God's purposes, this is just simply God Himself coming out after some object. It's His will, His heart coming out towards something, to accomplish something, to reveal something. That's God's heart. The heart of God is simply God, considered according to His pleasures, delights, purposes, and desires. And in that way, the heart of God is synonymous with the will of God. We read in Acts 13, God said of David, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. The heart 
and the will. How do we know that David was a man after God's own heart? Because he was willing to do whatever God would have him to do. Period. What David willed, God willed. What God willed, David willed. Saul, he willed after his own will. David said, I want what God wants. God's will came and conformed David's will to his own. God's heart is expressed in His will. To seek God's will is to seek God's heart. To seek God's heart is to seek God's will. They're one and the same. Now, how contrary is this to how we typically think or, or what typically comes to mind when we want to talk about the will of God? Usually the, the, the main idea there is I'm just trying to discover God's will for my life. And that's not illegitimate. But the will of God does not begin with you. The will of God does not begin with me. The central idea behind the will of God is first is not first and foremost, well, who will I marry? Or what college will I go to? Or how many children will I have? Or where shall I live? That's not where it starts. The first, foremost, and fountainhead of the will of God is located in the divine essence Himself, within the Godhead. It's who He is. And so the the central most important notion when it comes to the will of God for us is first, knowing God. Knowing God's heart. Knowing what God delights in. Knowing what God intends to do. Knowing what God's purposes are. Understanding and learning what pleases God in Himself. It might be hard for some of us to, to, to admit this, but did you know that God was pleased before we got here. The will of God was, was there before we got here. God had pleasures and delights and purposes and desires before He created anything. God had pleasures, delights, purposes and desires that were satisfied from eternity. He didn't, he didn't act and create because there was some lack. Now we know that things didn't stay that way though. God saw fit according to His will or according to His very heart to create and to perform the work that we now know as redemptive history. It's the will of God. And because God has done that, we can now see God's will. We can see God's pleasures. We can see God's delights. We can see God's purposes. We can see the very heart of God. We can know what God's heart has been from everlasting. God doesn't change. If we can establish God's, what God's will is right now, we know that's been God's will from eternity and will be God's will for eternity. We, those things are fixed. We can know what is the will of God. In other words, we can know the heart of God in heaven for sinners on earth because of what He's done. Now, how is it that we, that we come to see that? Well, we, we see the Word of God in what He has said and what He has done. Or... God has revealed His heart to us in word and deed. What He said, what He's done. For us, we can say things that are not, not in line with our hearts. We can deceive. We can do things that we really don't want to do and, and try to impress other people. Give an impression of things that are not true of us. God can't do that. It's not possible for Him. What He says and what He does reveals His will, His heart, absolutely. And there's no incongruity between these we look at what He said, we look at what He's done, we say, there, I see God's will, God's heart. So I want to unpack that a little bit. The first 
main heading is the heart of God in heaven for sinners on earth. And as we go through this, I want you to just think. The, the, the whole purpose is I just want us to think about this God and even answer this question within ourselves. What manner of God is this? We want, to, we want to have good, right conceptions of God. We want to leave here thinking rightly about God, not wrongly. We want to, I want to do, in a sense, open heart surgery and examine the contents of the heart of God in heaven for sinners on earth. And we'll do this again by considering what He said and what He's done. So we can start with creation. In creation, we see God's heart manifested in an entire created cosmos existing to reflect His own glory and become a theater upon which or in which His glorious grace would be displayed. And that's His heart. That's His will. That's what He wants to show us. He creates a world in order to be inhabited by mankind. He creates a garden and puts mankind in that garden to keep it. He makes man His image bearer, both male and female. He, he brings the, the man a wife, a suitable helper for him. And in all of that, what we're seeing is this is God's heart. This is what God desires. It's making God happy to do this. He even said it's all very good. And again, we can imagine a smile across the face of God. We read in Genesis chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. God didn't rest because He was tired. He rested or ceased because His heart had been made known. He had, he had poured it out. His good pleasure had been poured out in the execution of the creation act. His will was performed and so He stopped. In happiness, He stopped because it was done. The Bible says in Job 38 that God laid the foundation of the earth. He determined its measurements. He stretched the line upon it. He sunk its bases. He laid its cornerstone. And then the morning stars sang for joy and all the sons of God shouted for joy. They celebrated at the creative act of God. There was a, a heavenly party and celebration and exultation just in the creation act. The angels of heaven rejoicing. And if Psalm 19 says, I believe even of the present creation... The heavens declare the glory of God. How much more do you think that was so of the entire cosmos before the fall? Just declaring the glory of God and the angels, when they saw the heart of God poured out in creation, they rejoiced at what had come to pass. God's pleasures, His delights, God's purposes, God's desires, that is God's will or God's heart is seen here. What, what does this God want to do? He wants to create a world. He wants to put mankind in that world. Now in spite of all this, we know Adam sinned. Though Eve was deceived, Adam willfully transgressed the covenant, we learn from Hosea. Because Adam was the representative for the whole human race, when he sinned and broke covenant with God, that resulted in a fall for all mankind. As Paul says in Romans 5.18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now, somebody might object and say, well, that doesn't sound really fair. 
Well, Paul also says the wages of sin is death. So I guess the first of us who's without sin can go ahead and begin to make that appeal to God. It's not fair. But God's going to say, well, then you're a sinner. We'll use you as the federal head then. How do we fare at that point? We all are still condemned. All of us stand guilty before God. Because of sin, the race that we call mankind was cut off from God. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in trespasses and sins. Colossians 1 says that we're alienated from God and hostile in our minds doing evil deeds. Well, that's not fair. Well, then stop being hostile to God. Stop doing evil deeds. Prove to us how unfair it is that we all stand condemned in Adam. It's perfectly fair because we're all just like Him. Now, when we read of the fall and we read of these, uh, the following results... In, in Genesis chapter 3, usually when we're reading that, it's hard to imagine a smile on the face of God. Nonetheless, even in this, we still do see the heart of God in heaven for sinners on earth. We read of it in statements like Exodus 34, 7. He is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Psalm 5, 4 and 6, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That's God's heart in heaven towards sinners on earth. Psalm 11, 5, His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Habakkuk 1, 13 says, He is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth is manifested in God's utter revulsion of sin. Sort of a, a divine gag reflex in the presence of sin and sinners and wickedness. There's a natural enmity that exists between God and anything unholy. That's His heart. That's His will. That's who He is. Now, does all of this mean that things had, had at this point gotten away from God, that the, the race is now out of control and God is obligated to begin to try to, to rein in this thing that's gotten out of His hands? No, it doesn't. We know that even this was all according to His eternal decree, His hidden, hidden counsels, which we, I, I, I say it's not any of our business to pry into. It's according to His counsel. It was, in an inexplicable sense, God's very heart on display as He allowed that serpent to slither into His garden on that day. His heart was on display. The secret and hidden will of God. And think about it. What did all of this do except set the stage more aptly for the revelation of the heart of God in heaven toward sinners on earth? It wasn't sufficient to see God's heart merely in creation. It wasn't even enough to see God's heart for created man in his pre-fall state. God, listen, God wanted to reveal His heart in heaven toward sinners, fallen man. If God didn't want that, it wouldn't have happened. But that's what He wanted to do. He wanted to show us. Not here's just my heart toward all that I've made. Here's my heart toward the things that I've made after they've rebelled against me. And we see it first in that God came to seek out Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
Have you ever read that passage and said, what a heart God has for sinners on earth. That He'd come down and seek them out and put clothes on their back. That's His heart towards sinners. Some of you come to church every week and you hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the midst of the lampstand, in, in the, the, the reading of the Scriptures and the preaching of the, the sermon and the singing and, and in God's people. You hear the sound of the Lord God in this place and your attitude is just like that of Adam and Eve. You run and hide. Now you don't leave the room, but you hide yourself with with good upright morality, with good speech, with calmness, with, with a general agreement about you. What you're doing is what Adam and Eve did. You're, you're trying to cover yourself from this God, not realizing what He's come to do is cover you. That's what He came to do was to cover them. Can you not see the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth? The very first two sinners that we know of are clothed and fed and Received promises from God. God made a promise to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He promised the woman that would be pain in childbirth and there would be a requirement to, of submission to her husband, although she wouldn't really uh, have that natural tendency. He promised the man there would be toil and sweat and that he would eventually die. In other words, God in heaven comes down to the first two sinners on earth and says, I'm going to let you live. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to feed you from the ground. Yes, it will be hard. There will be a struggle. You will eventually die. But one day, once and for all, I'm going to destroy the work of this serpent using one of your very own offspring. That's the will of God. And this is back, this is where it all started. Have you ever stopped to consider that the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians had its roots right here in the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth? God was already preparing to call the Apostle Paul by his own will because it made him happy to write a letter that we would then open up and read. Sinners like us. We continue to see the heart of God towards sinners on earth when he comes to Abraham and the patriarchs. He promises that through them... That promise that he made to the serpent would be fulfilled. He tells Abraham, a sinner, remember, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He comes to the nation of Israel in Egypt and He leads them out and He appoints for them an entire system of worship and gives Himself to dwell in their midst. He appoints a priesthood to oversee that worship. Every, every factor of which pointed to the promised salvation in types and shadows. He gives them a king whose duty it is to uphold the law and protect the purity of the worship. As we've been reading, notice how many of the kings, they said they were a good king, but they didn't destroy the high places. That was the king's job. There's, there's false worship taking place. He should have fixed that. That was the king's job, protect the purity of the worship. He sends them prophets who would declare His promises to them and unfold that original promise more and more and more. What manner of, a, of God is this? that comes to a nation of sinners, that as we read of their history, 
We're dumbfounded at how quickly they rebel. We're just flabbergasted. It's every generation. How, and we know how it happens because it happens to us. God comes to those people and He gives them promises. For instance, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name God with us. Emmanuel. Promises like, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Or promises like, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Or promises like, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. Hopefully you're beginning to get a little bit of a picture of the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth. This is what He does. Man sins. God promises a deliverer. God promises justice. God promises one upon whom He will lay all of our iniquities. And He says that at that point when all of your iniquities are laid upon Him, it will be my will, my pleasure, my pleasure in that moment to crush Him in your place. That's the the heart of God. It pleased Him to crush Him. That's the promise. Now, I don't think it's a strange thing for us uh, or, or new information to us to point out that when we come to the New Testament, we turn that blank page in our Bible, not only chronologically, but also canonically. Uh, everything is about one person. The entire New Testament, it, every bit of it is about one man. Chronologically, just in the general time frame, all of a sudden we pick up following this one man. Canonically, we open to Matthew, the first book. What is the first thing we read? The the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The angel told Joseph concerning his wife Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth, that they'd be saved from the penalty of their sins. Your sins, my sins. God says, they've sinned. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to send them a Savior. I'm going to send them one who will save them from the condemnation and guilt of their sins. The very first words that we hear from Christ are at His baptism. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Before a priest could serve as high priest, he had to go through the rites of purification. And Christ submitted Himself to the regulations of that law. Christ did not come to bypass the law. He came to fulfill the law. And again, we see the very heart of God. God does not say, if you will be saved, then fulfill all righteousness and I'll save you. He doesn't say, this is my heart. My heart is to save you. Just meet all of the requirements and I can, and I can save you. We can work that out. That's not His heart. That is contrary to the heart of God. 
We're reminded again in the coming of Jesus Christ and in His perfect life that the heart of God in heaven towards sinners is that they be ransomed by the work of another. That's God's heart. Not that you save yourself, that He save you. As we just read, just stand by and wait upon the Lord. That's His heart. That's how God saves. His heart is that another would stand in our place. That His own Son would come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That the doing and dying of Jesus Christ would rescue us from the damnation and dominion of sin. That's the heart of God. What manner of God is this? That we would sin. And He comes and He says, Well, I promise I'm going to bring forth justice and I'm going to destroy the serpent. I'm going to send my Son. And then He does it. And He says, And don't you lift a finger... Because as soon as you begin to start covering yourself, as soon as you begin to start working out your own righteousness, you're out. This only works if I do all of the work. That's God's heart in heaven towards sinners on earth. The heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth is most clearly seen when in the fullness of time, that is God's time, according to God's purpose, God's intentions, God's good pleasure, that is God's will, according to the fullness that God had established, God the Son comes, sent from the Father, to redeem us from the curse of our own sins. This is the heart of God in heaven. Then Christ continues to speak. And we see more of God's heart in heaven toward sinners on earth. Jesus Himself said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That, that's perfectly and absolutely congruous in the man Christ Jesus. As He speaks, He says in Matthew 9, 37-38, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. It is God's heart, God's will, that He gather in a harvest of souls from His fields. That's what He wants to do. That's His plan. He wants it to the, to the extent that He says, God the Son says, pray. How many, how many times do we come to situations in our life where we're willing to reach out to somebody else and say, would you please pray with me about this thing or that thing? I need some other people to join in me, join with me in this prayer. God the Son says, pray earnestly for laborers. Why? Because this is God's heart. He wants to gather in a harvest of souls. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And all the, all the Calvinists say, Yeah! And then Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Who's that going to be? Jesus says, anybody who will come. I'm here. Come to me all. I'll give you rest. That's the heart of God. Come all. It's God's heart that sinners come to Jesus Christ for rest. So what about the non-elect? What about the reprobate? Don't pin that on God like God sinned for them. Like God's stiff-arming them. If you're, if you're not coming to God, that's your fault. God's not holding you back. You won't come. He said come. That's His heart. John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What's God's heart? What does God want? 
He wants us to have abundant life. Matthew 25, 21 tells us that it is the heart of God that sinners like us would eventually enter into the joy of our Master. That's what God wants to do for us. In the teaching of Jesus, we see God's heart in heaven towards sinners on earth. And that is that they may be gathered in like a harvest to Him, that they would come to Him through Jesus Christ, His Son, that they would have abundant life here on earth, and then when they die, they would enter into His joy forever. God is happy to do this for sinners. He's not reluctant. He's not unsettled. He's not unsure about what might happen if a sinner comes to Him. There are not some that He says, well, now if that one comes, I I really don't know about that one. No, it's settled. Everyone who comes is saved. That's His heart. That's what we we know about Him from the Word of God. Now all this culminates in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If you truly want to see the heart of God, the will of God, the good pleasure of God, you can look at the cross. See, Watch what the Son of God does on the cross. We'll see in chapter 15 of this epistle, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is, just as God had purposed and planned and intended, just as God had willed, so He did. He died, was buried, was raised. Christ fulfilled the plans of God. He shows us this is the will of God, that His Son come and die for our sins. Hebrews 9.12, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.26, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. How can we know God's disposition Towards sinners. Maybe you have that thought sometimes. All, all that I could just know how God feels about sinners. What is His attitude towards sinners? I would say look at the cross. We see the Son of God dying for sins. We see Him putting away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. We see, see Him securing an eternal redemption. I imagined... As I thought through this picture of putting away sins, a, a, a cargo ship full of scoundrels who've, who've snuck out in the middle of the night out into the middle of the ocean to, to unload toxic waste in barrels. And they finally get to where they're going and they, they drop the hatch and they just begin to shove these barrels off into the sea. And as soon as they hit the water, they're gone in the darkness. They're, they're never to be seen again. And that's sort of the picture of, of God putting away sins He just shoves them into the depths of the sea and as soon as they hit it, they're gone. The the sea of God's wrath that swallowed up Christ is the same sea of, of blessing, the sea of God's love which engulfs us. As we heard, judgment and salvation come in the same act. He puts away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. God the Son was judged in our place, but what that meant was our sins are put away, gone. And when we hear all that, it begins to make sense what we read in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is why Peter 
could preach, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You might say, I just want to know God's will for my life. If you're not a Christian, God's will for your life is that you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's God's will. Peter preached that unqualified into a crowd of people. Unqualified. He didn't say, all right, elect on the right hand, uh, non-elect on the left hand. Okay, let me, let me deal with you first. Now, all of you repent and be baptized. You, you guys just ignore me for a second. He didn't say that. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Anybody on that day who repented and came to follow Christ in baptism received the Holy Spirit. And every one of those 3,000 souls, give or take a few, every one of those, if you could bring them out of heaven now and have them bear their testimony right now, all of them, they could line up here and they could say, listen to me, when He says repent and you'll be saved, He means it. Because I repented and I was saved. They would all bear witness to that. Peter was bold. Why? Because he lived three and a half years with the heart of God incarnate. He knew what God's heart was for sinners. He himself had experienced that matchless grace of Christ for sinners. Perhaps you are a Christian. So you might ask, well, does the will of God stop now that I have become a Christian? Has the will of God sort of run its full course for me so that now I'm sometimes left to wonder what His disposition toward me might be. Well, the answer again is no. Look, look at your lap. Look at your Bible. You got the letter of 1 Corinthians, right? What do I mean? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. The heart of God toward us is that we be sanctified by the Holy Spirit given to us. Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory. This is, this is the desire, the heart of God, that we be sanctified and brought all the way to be physically in the presence of Christ in eternity. That's what He wants. Now what does this have to do with 1 Corinthians? Well, this leads to the, the second main point, which is much shorter. The title is not quite so short. The heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth manifested in epistolary communication. Sounds, sounds smart, right? We could say the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth shown to us in the existence of apostolic letters like we have in 1 Corinthians. Going back to Goodwin's question, if Christ has now ascended into the heavens to a state of incomprehensible glory... If redemption has now been accomplished and applied in our case, He's done all of the work, can we imagine that His heart in heaven is still towards sinners on earth? He's done so much. Well, we say to people that help us and they, they finish and they say, was well, there anything else that I can do? In the back of your mind you're saying, I could really use the help for another three or four hours, but I don't want to over or abuse your willingness to help. Is it possible that after all of this that Christ has done, that He's still interested in our plight? Would He tarry with us? Would He continue to give Himself to us? The answer is yes. Remember He prayed in John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. 
That's us. Christ on earth prayed for those like us who would come to faith through the ministry of the apostles. Christ's concern for us did not conclude at the cross or even at His ascension. God's heart is ever toward those who believe. Sinners on earth. And one clear way that we see God's heart toward us now is through the writings of the apostles. 1 Corinthians comes to us as the God-breathed Word on the wings of Christ's prayer that we be sanctified by the truth. Your Word is truth. And that He prayed this for all of those who would come to believe through the apostolic writing. This is God's heart for us. When we consider Paul himself and the work of God in him and the providence that brought him to preach the gospel in Corinth, we see God's heart in heaven toward us. That's a benefit to us. All things are, are ours in Christ. We learn, or when we learn, that the Spirit of God was present in the inspiration of what Paul wrote to these saints, we learn that God's will was that His Word come to us. When we see the providences that came upon the church in Corinth and that a door was opened to address the issues in that church in such a way that would be relevant and useful to the church of Christ in every generation, we see God had an eye out for us. He was working in all things for us. When we hold our Bibles and we see that we have Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, and we know that there's at least one letter that we don't have, we recognize that it was God's pleasure that we have these two, not the other one, or the other two, however many there were. God preserved for us what He was pleased for us to have, what we need. He's not given us more than we need. He's not given us less than we need. He's given us exactly what we need in His Word. God's heart in heaven towards sinners on earth can be known right now in that God is still speaking through His Word. He still teaches us and instructs us and corrects us and guides us. He doesn't let us run off on our own. But He hymns us in with His Word. The same God according to the same will who brought the children of Israel out of Egypt had in His heart in that very act of bringing them out of Egypt, in that act, the same will, in the same stream, from the same God, was leading down the line of history to 1 Corinthians being opened in the laps of Americans in the year 2022. That, 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 same, that same plan, that issuing forth of providence from God, it's all a stream of His goodness to His people. Every bit of it, terminating in the present time. And then... Tomorrow, it'll terminate there. And the next day, and the next day, until Christ calls us home. God's people in every generation receive this fullness of God's heart toward us. It was the very same unchangeable purpose which intended all of the acts of God. All things work together for the good of those who love God. All of the acts of God flow in the same stream from His heart to us. And so in this sense, every epistle that we have is a token of the heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners on earth. He's not a victorious yet absentee Lord. 
He didn't do mighty things and then ride off into the sunset and we just hear the end of the story, but we never really see Him again. Christ has not graduated to bigger and better things than the salvation and sanctification of His people. He's exalted into the heavens in order to continue to save and sanctify His people. Our great high priest is interceding for us even now. And I believe if we can take John 17 as a pattern of what Christ's high priestly prayer looks like for His people at all times, we could say that Christ is praying and ensuring that in this church, the reading and the preaching of 1 Corinthians, accompanied by His Spirit, will be used to sanctify individuals and families and this church body. That's our confidence. My confidence in starting a new book of the Bible is not that I'll do a good job with it. My confidence is that Christ means to sanctify His people by His Word. So every time for the foreseeable future, when we as a church gather and we say, open, let's open together to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, down to chapter 16. Every time we can stop and ask ourselves, what is this that we're reading? And the answer will always be, it is a testimony. It is a witness to us that God in heaven, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, has His heart turned toward us to do us good, to feed us, to sanctify us, to sustain us until we enter into His joy. And as the old, the old saints would say, farewell, Scriptures, farewell, written Word of God, welcome incarnate Word. No more Scripture reading, no more preaching, no more expositions. We live in the presence of the very Word incarnate. Until that time, we pick up the Word written and trust that the Word incarnate means to do us some good through it. There's confidence here. Let us please never hold our heads high and thump our chests and say, well, well, we do expositional preaching. We, we preach through books of the Bible as if that makes us somehow better than anyone. The finish line is this. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, as we were praying a reference was made to the passage where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And uh, those, those who are not Christians, maybe your, your desire is to be a Christian or you're, you're, you're thinking that way, maybe you're contemplating the idea of Christianity and you might think that what's going to happen is that at some point a, a switch is going to flip and all of a sudden you're just going to begin sort of levitating on your feet and you'll just float into heaven and everything will be delightful and, and uh, that's not the case. The believers in here will tell you that no, you take it by force. It's been held out. Christ has been presented. You've got to take it by force. We, we, we pursue. We go after. We get up every day. We're studying the Word. We're praying. We're, 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 we're working. Not to be justified, but because we understand that that's our, our aim, is to take it. One of the means by which we take it, one of the weapons of that, that violent warfare, is the means of grace that is the Lord's Supper. 
We, we take the time to meditate on Christ crucified and are commanded to do so, not just to, to bring us to, to somber and, and sort of dreary contemplation of a, of a bleeding and dying man. No, we're commanded to do this and we delight to do it because we must. This is something we have to do, is, is remember what Christ has done for us and what it, what it meant that He hung on the cross, that our iniquities were laid upon Him, what it meant that the Father in that moment was pleased to crush Him so that He doesn't crush us. So as the elements are passed, let's, let's take that time and just consider the heart of God in, in Christ crucified for sinners, and then we'll come to the table.